All right. So last week, we began a three-message series of talks on our God of grace. And we began last week by exploring the marvelous riches of God's grace to us. And we saw it especially in his utterly dependable, steadfast love for us. And we see God's, the riches of God's grace in Jesus, who we're told in John 1 was full of grace. And Jesus extends to us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The riches of God's grace are given to us through Jesus. So mostly last week, we really looked at our, how much our God is a grace-saturated God. And that's the foundation for the message today and the, the last one next week. Our God is a grace-saturated God. In Christianity, we don't follow a God who loves us because we're good enough to be loved. In Christianity, we follow a God who loves us before we are good. We follow a God who loves us when we absolutely don't deserve to be loved. And in Christianity, it's in the context of the riches of God's grace and in response to the loving kindness of God that we grow to become who God wants us to be. So God doesn't love us once we've grown into our truest selves. God loves us so that we can grow into our truest, truest selves. And I don't remember whether I said this last week, but some of you have heard me say it before. I grew up really, I mean, truth be told, I grew up thinking that grace was God's plan for failures, right? If you flunked out spiritually, then you took God's grace. And so very honestly, um, growing up, I didn't want God's grace. I wanted to be holy. And I pitied people who needed God's grace. And then I started to realize that I needed it too. And so over the decades of my Christian life, I've been learning that God's grace is not his second-rate plan for spiritual failures. God's grace is God's first and best plan for spiritual failures to become spiritual giants. Let me say that again. God's grace is not God's second-rate plan for spiritual failures. God's grace is God's first and best plan for spiritual failures to truly become spiritual giants. So this week, I want to explore, we talked about our God's, how grace-saturated is our God last week. This week, I want to explore how do we get that grace of God, how do we receive it into our daily lives? Because it's one thing to know that that's who our God is. It's another thing to live daily in the riches of God's grace. I pray that, that your assignment last week after the sermon was to try to notice God's grace towards you throughout the week. And I pray that you found lots of times where God just showed up and you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, you didn't expect it, but God showed up in sweet ways to show you how much he loves you. And so today I want to talk, how do we get to the point where our lives are saturated in God's grace? So a couple questions. How would you like to be free of having to measure up all the time? How would you like to be free of having to measure up to your expectations for yourself? Wouldn't it be glorious to not have to feel like you're failing to always measure up with what you 
require of yourself? And how would you like to be free from the demands and expectations of others in your life for you to be successful, for you to look a certain way, for you to accomplish certain things? And how would you like to free other people from your demands and expectations? All of which is to ask, how would you like to receive more grace and give more grace in your life? And today I want to show you from the scriptures a very unexpected, a very surprising biblical way to live a grace-saturated life. In those exact places where we feel like we don't measure up. In those places where we feel like we are failures. In those places where we are inadequate and anxious and stressed. So when you came in, you should have gotten three by five cards. Do you have them? Everybody? Everybody's gonna need a three by five card because we refer to it like three times in the middle of the message. All right? If you don't have pens, then did we, we have some pens that we can pass out. So raise your hand if you don't have a pen and nobody near you brought a pen, which means none of you plan to take notes on paper at church. All right, cards are coming around and pens are coming around. Um, it doesn't matter what color the cards are. Um, I see that there are white ones. For some reason, I have a bunch of neon-colored 3x5 cards on my desk. It doesn't make any difference what the colors are. All right, is a hand over here? All right. Just like last week, I want to begin the message. Yeah, keep your hand up if you need a card. I see that hand. <laughs> and Sen Young, there's one over here on the other side, too. Just keep him running back and forth, okay? It's good for his exercise. All right, just like last week, I want to begin the message with a survey. And just like last week, you and only you are going to see the results of this survey. So you're not going to have to share it with anybody else. Um, and, and that means you can be as bluntly honest with yourself as you can handle being. Um, on your 3 by 5 card, um, I'd like you to write down three or four, try not to go more than four, three or four significant weaknesses and failures in your life. If you're worried that the people next to you are going to look at your card, then write it in code because you know what your failures and weaknesses are. And so list three or four of them. I'll pause for about 60 seconds here. And like I said, this is only between you and God. So be as honest with yourself as you can, all right? Don't pick wimpy weaknesses significant ones that actually really do mess with your head and heart. So I'll give you about 60 seconds and write down three or four weaknesses or failures in your life. Isn't it amazing? If I asked you to write down three or four successes and, and things that you're doing really well in life, a lot of us would struggle. But as soon as we think of weaknesses and failures, we know what they are. Scripture that we're going to look at this morning is 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. The author is the Apostle Paul, who actually he planted the church in Corinth to whom this letter is written. 
And if you read the last two chapters of 2 Corinthians, you realize that Paul's relationship with the church that he planted in Corinth, it was kind of complicated. It was, it, there was some struggle going on between him and his church. And in the context of his complicated relationship with the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul reveals something personal. He reveals to them that he has struggled with what he calls a thorn in the flesh. There was something in the Apostle Paul's life which he never explicitly names. There was something that was a significant weakness or failure. If he were here this morning, he would have written that down on the card. And my guess is he would have written it in code because he seems to want this to be between him and God, which is perfectly fine. Commentators have all kinds of theories about what his thorn in the flesh may have been. There are those who think that it's some kind of a sin that he couldn't break free of. There are those who think it's some kind of a physical ailment, but we simply don't know because Paul never tells us. But what Paul does tell us is that it messed with him so much that he pled with God, please take away this thorn in the foot, take away this weakness, take away this foot. Please, 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 God, would you take it away? But God said, no. Because God had a better plan for the Apostle Paul than to eliminate and eradicate his weaknesses and his failures and his struggles. God had a better plan for Paul and God has a better plan for us. Here's what Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. He writes, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a story he had told just before this, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me, but he, God, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul continues, therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a curveball that we didn't see coming. The Apostle Paul pleads, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God refuses. Ever been there? I have, right? Things in my life where I've just wanted to go away. Please, God, can you heal them? Can you, can you give me victory? Can you take them away? Because they're making me miserable. But um, God says no. If you have on your Bibles, if your phone is, has red letters, the words of Jesus in red letters, then when you get to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the letters are in red because this is verbatim God saying to Paul that his grace is sufficient. And, um, and there's no way to mistake it. God simply has a better plan than to take away all of our weaknesses and failures. When we can't make our weaknesses go away on their own, we try that first, right? We try harder and harder and harder and harder. And then when they just seem to overwhelm us and defeat us, or we lose energy, then that's usually when we cry out to God. 
But then when we cry out to God and cry out to God and cry out to God, and he says no, what do we do next? Some of us get mad at God, and we, you know, get disappointed in him. Some of us get mad at ourselves, and we get disappointed at ourselves. When I was in college, at one point I was wrestling, and I realized that it was my parents and my church that had told me that I was supposed to defeat all these things, and then so I got mad at my parents and mad at my church. When we think about what we just wrote on our three-by-five cards, the weaknesses, inadequacies, whatever, failures, shame, anxieties, fears, disappointments, we just want them to go away and disappear. But one of the most countercultural messages of the Christian faith is that you're not stronger when your weaknesses go away. As a follower of Jesus, you are not stronger when you have fewer sins in your life and fewer failures in your life. I've preached on this passage in almost every church that I've um, served in, um, and I've been pastoring for 42 years. Every church, at some point, I've come to this. As a matter of fact, five years ago, I preached on this passage here at Cornerstone, but most of you won't remember it, so I figure I can get away with it again. Over the years, I've tried to explore for, um, 2 Corinthians 12.9 with actual real weaknesses in my life to actually make it applicable to me. And so let me share with you four weaknesses and struggles in my life. And, um, and then we're going to hold those up to 2 Corinthians 12.9. First one that I'd share with you is that I was raised by a mom who was very, very broken. She did the best that she could from where she came from, but I have very significant gaps in my sense of being from my family of origin. Um, one of them, just there are many of them, but just one of them is I actually don't know how to receive love very well. I know that I'm supposed to know how to do it, but I don't know. I'm way better at giving love and expressing it than I am at receiving it. When people try to love me, I actually freeze up. I don't know quite what to do, which means that, that I'm constantly afraid of being abandoned. I'm constantly afraid that I will be alone in my pain, but I don't know how to ask people to be with me when I'm lonely. I've asked God to take so many of my family of origin things away, but he doesn't seem to be that interested in taking them away, at least up to this point in my life. Number two, as I've shared before in, in other messages, my entire life I have struggled to develop a holy, God-honoring sexuality. Like lots of guys, I've tried to figure out how to manage my lust, and like lots of us, I have failed way more than I've succeeded. This has been a constant battle. I would have told you through most of my life that this was the worst battle of my spiritual life, trying to overcome the temptations. And it was really, for me, or has been, a thorn in the flesh. And I've asked God to take it away. But I'm 66, and it's still not gone. Third, in January of 2000, I had, many of you know this, I had a mild traumatic brain injury. I was in Minnesota, a church where we were pastoring there in the Twin Cities, and, um, and I had a sledding accident. And I did what my doctor said was the equivalent of I dove headfirst into a pool with no water in it, which gave me a mild traumatic brain injury. It happened right when I was writing my dissertation, and it was a long road of recovery. As a matter of fact, I mean, 
if you got Marla talking about this, this is another one of those things that Marla will tear up about because it was really hard on my family because they didn't know for months whether they were ever going to get me back to be normal again. My doctors told me it would be a slow process of recovery, but that I would never get more than 80% of my previous accident capacity, brain capacity, back. And I remember just weeping and praying, God, can you fix this? Can you heal my brain? Can you let me come back to 100% capacity? And God said no. And then the fourth example of failure for me has been this last um, year at Cornerstone. Without going into details, because you don't need to know them. Um, you know how messes with you when you give your best to something and it's still a fail, right? If you don't give your best and it fails, you can go, oh, I didn't try that hard anyway. But when you give your best and you try and you pray your way through and you come before God with it and it still fails, then there's no place to hide. And so over the last nine months, I've pleaded with God to, to do some things in ministry here at Cornerstone. And um, God has not been interested in making the problems go away, making the problems in me go away. God didn't stop and fix it. And I'm still very honestly, I'm trying to figure out how to function under the weight of some of that failure. So with that, let's explore 2 Corinthians 10, 9 and 10, applied to the actual weaknesses and failures in our lives. What does God say to us in the face of our weaknesses and failures? And the first thing that God says is, my grace is sufficient for you. Last week we saw that God's grace, it, grace is just this rich theological and relational term. And when God says that he gives us his grace, it means that, that in his, as a grace-saturated God, he has for us undeserved, unearned blessings and favor and kindness and goodness and honor and loyalty and joy and peace and gentleness and beauty all of that is part of God's grace that he pours out to us. And as I said last week, I hope that you spent this week seeing some of the unearned grace and beauty that God has poured out towards you. And I hope you've seen something every single day. When it comes to, our, to, to many of our weaknesses and failures, as I said, God's plan isn't to take them away. God's plan is instead to pour out his grace upon us. He says, my grace is enough. It really, really is enough. God tells us that in, the, in spite or in the face of our weaknesses, in the face of our sins, that his grace is better than taking those things away. The richness of God's grace means that we don't have to always, 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 always get better and better and better and better. We don't have to eradicate those things. Because of God's grace, we cannot do something better. We can overcome them by no longer being defined by them. Because that's the, that's the meanness in our failures, right? If Satan says, you failed, and now he says, now you're defined by that failure. Now you're defined by that sin. But the grace of our God says that we are no longer defined by our weaknesses and sins and our failures. We are defined by God's grace. Because of the grace of God, we're no longer in bondage to our shame and to our fears and to our anger. Not because they went away, but because God has given us power over them. 
the all-sufficient grace of God means that we don't have to be driven to succeed and to meet everybody's expectations anymore. The all-sufficient grace of God means we don't have to be perfect. So many of us are perfectionists. The grace of God says you don't have to be a perfectionist anymore. The all-sufficient grace of God means that we don't have to fake it till we make it. We really don't. The all-sufficient grace of God means that we don't have to compare ourselves with anyone else ever again for the, for the rest of our lives. The grace of God defends, de defines the followers of Jesus. Not our body image, not our wardrobe, not our popularity, not who we marry, not what others think, not the school that we got into, not our grades, not our job title, not our promotions, not how much money we make, and not how successful we are, and not how much we please our parents. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is really better for you. My grace really is enough. Could you hear God telling you, my dear child, you're defined by my steadfast, loving kindness and goodness and beauty towards you. So for me, my dysfunctional family of origin issues, they don't define me. I may always have a gap in my sense of being. I may never pick up on some emotional cues. I may always struggle to know that I am loved. I may struggle with fears of abandonment. I hope I'll keep on growing, but I may never really know when enough is enough. And God doesn't have to take that away because God's grace is more than enough in dealing with my family of origin issues. So take a look at your three by five card. What you wrote there does not define you. What if you don't have to overcome those? What if God's grace is better? God wants you to know that he loves you even with those weaknesses and sins and especially with those weaknesses and sins. God wants you to know that he pursues you with his goodness and mercy and grace every day of your life, especially right there in those things that are on your card. And in the end, perfectionism will never be enough. Success actually will never be enough. Meeting people's expectations will never be enough. In the end, it's God's grace and mercy and love pursuing us that is sufficient and that is enough. So after God tells us that his grace is sufficient, he goes on to the second part, and again, it's still in red letters in your Bible because this is directly the words of God, and God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. The Greek word for weakness, it's got a wide range of kinds of things. It can refer to illnesses, but it's various limitations. It can refer to lack of confidence, to sin, to failure. It's just, got, it's just a broad term for anything that is considered weakness. And God says, it doesn't matter what your weaknesses are. No weakness is stronger than God's power to be able to redeem. In any and every weakness, God's power can be released. And so to be clear, when we're talking about God's power, we're talking about the God who created the universe. We're talking about the God who created the human race. We're talking about the power of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And you and I have no weakness. There is no sin. There is no failure. There's no anxiety that is stronger 
than the power of God to redeem. So this is, this is contrary to everything we hear in the world. Christianity insists that it's not when we're strong that we are the most effective. According to Christianity, it's when we are weak that we are the most effective. Because when we are weak, that's when God's power can be released into us and through us. Those weaknesses that you wrote down, they are the glorious spaces where God's power can come in, not eradicating them, but redeeming them and making you strong over them. So I mentioned that I've struggled my whole life to develop a God-honoring sexuality. It doesn't matter how, how hard I've tried. It doesn't matter how hard I've prayed. It doesn't matter how many spiritual disciplines I've done. I've never found a new spiritual truth. I've never found a certain amount of repentance that makes any of that thorn in the flesh go away. God has never taken it away from me. I failed and repented time and time again for most of my life, and I used to see that as a fatal flaw. But what I used to see as a fatal flaw I now realize was God's opportunity for his grace to be enough for me and for his power to be released in me. I'm still working on it, but I can tell you today that my decades-long seeking for holiness and sexual purity to seeking to develop, my decades-long of pursuing that and failing time and time again has shaped me in so many ways to be the man that I am today which means that I can talk boldly with God about my, when I struggle sexually. I can talk with anybody in the world with their sexual temptations because God's power has been released in me as I've realized it doesn't have to go away because God's power can be in that. Biblical Christianity teaches God's power is unleashed in our weakness. So pull out your card for the second time. Read through the three or th four things that you wrote down there. And start to see that what you wrote is where God's power is going to show up in your life. Maybe more than any place else in your whole life. Those things that you wrote on that card are opportunities for the power of God to transform how you look at the world and for the power of God to flood into you so that you can make the world a better place. What we see as liabilities, God sees as opportunities, perfect opportunities to unleash his power. So how, how do we respond to what God says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9? The Apostle Paul gives us a model in the next verse. In the next verse, Paul says, therefore, because God's grace is sufficient, because God's power is released in our weaknesses, therefore, Paul says, let's catch this, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of God may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, he says, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Another curveball, right? It's one thing to admit that our weaknesses and failures on a three-by-five card, it's one thing to admit them to ourselves. It's another thing to boast about our weaknesses. The reason that I gave you four of the weaknesses in my life is because I wanted to model how to boast in our weaknesses and not 
hide them. Paul says that the right response to the grace of God is to be able to open up and say, yep, this is me. I am as screwed up and more screwed up than anybody else. And we then, only in the family of Jesus, do we learn the grace and power of God that enables us to boast in our weaknesses. So that head injury thing in 2000, um, I actually don't know how bad it was because my brain was like scrambled eggs, right? Um, but as I said, it was really hard on Marla and it was really hard on our family for all kinds of reasons. You can get the full story some other time. I remember laying, I, I, we moved my, moved a mattress down into the rec room because I was sleeping like 18 hours a day at first. And I, would, I remember laying on that mattress in the rec room and just weeping and weeping and weeping and saying, dear God, can you heal this? Can you take this away? Um, but I now know that that was one of God's gifts to me. See, I was at that time, I was this high-powered pastor of leadership development in a mega church in the Twin Cities, and God knew that I needed to live more on his power and less on my power. God knew that the only way to downshift me to be able to give me more of his power was to limit me so I couldn't do what I'd always done in the past. Now, some of you hang around me enough to know. You think that Marla's a saint for putting up with my high energy because you watch how we do things? You have no idea how much of a saint Marla was to put up with my high energy at full capacity when we had little children. And you should pat her on the shoulder that she survived and put up with me. You have no idea how crazy it could be living my life at the speed that I was living it at full capacity. But God knew that he had something better. So he graciously allowed me to have a sledding accident. And I would tell you, I'm, I don't have the same capacity that I used to, but I would tell you that I praise God for my mild traumatic brain injury because I think that there's more power of God through me now than there was before. So how are we going to respond to these truths of the Christian life. I have a feeling, folks, that we can't have it both ways. I don't think we can have both. I think we can have either our competence and success and excellence, or we can gladly boast in our weaknesses and have the power of God. I don't think we get to do both, okay? We're going to have to choose. We can either have our facades of self-sufficiency, or we can have the fullness of the sufficiency of God. We can either have our striving for perfection, that is an idol that will drive you crazy. We can either have our striving for perfection, or we can have Christ's abiding power in and through our lives. So I want to challenge you today. What do you want more? Do you want to get rid of those things on your 3 by 5 card, or do you want the power of God poured into your life? It's kind of painful to do, but I actually think that I'm supposed to be now boasting in the things that I felt have been a failure in the last nine months of pastoring here at Cornerstone. It hurts to do that, but I've stopped praying that God would fix the stuff that just didn't work, that I broke, okay? And now I'm asking God to help me boast in the things that I'm inadequate in so that 
there will be more of his power in my life and more blessing for Cornerstone Church. Not because I'm adequate, but precisely because I'm in inadequate. So Paul says in verse 10, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weakness. Wow, wouldn't you love to get there? I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want the power of Christ to rest on me and my family of origin issues. I want the power of Christ to rest on me in my struggle for sexual purity. I want the power of Christ to rest on me because of the limitations of my brain injury. And I want the power of Christ to rest on me because of my inadequacies as a pastor over the last nine months. So one more time, take out your card. Take a look again at what you wrote. If you want the power of God to rest on you, and that word means to dwell with you. It's not just kind of bounce on and bounce off, but it's dwell. If you want the power of God to rest on you in the areas of your weakness and failure, maybe God's plan is not for you to keep fighting so hard. Because the more you fight with those weaknesses, the more you're defined by those weaknesses, right? Maybe God's best plan for you is to soak in God's grace and say, thank you, God, for giving me these. And thank you for your grace that is sufficient. Thank you for giving me these exact, precise weaknesses and failures that you've given me. And maybe God wants you to actually learn to boast in those weaknesses. Maybe if you start to boast in them, there will be more of God's power within you to face the life that God has given you and more of God's power released through you to make the world better because of you. So I'm going to give you a minute to just kind of, kind of in your, your heart, lift up your weaknesses before Jesus. And just go over what you wrote with him. Say, Jesus, is there anything that you want to say to me about these? And then, and I'm, I'm, I'll give you like 60 seconds. If, when you finish talking to Jesus, you really want to do this, then I encourage you to write on an angle across your weaknesses on your card, the line that's up here behind me. I encourage you to write, I will gladly boast in these weaknesses so Christ's power will rest on me. So I'm going to give you about a minute. I'll tell you when we're almost there. And if you're ready, then write across that the response that Paul had to his weaknesses. Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, we cannot 
find great enough words to thank you for the riches of your grace. Everything in the world says we have to be striving. And you come and say that you are pursuing us with your love. And that we don't have to have a performance-based spirituality anymore. We don't have to measure up to our own self-expectations or those of others because we have your love. And the crazy thing is we think that if we got rid of our faults, then we'd be better. But in reality, it's when we have your love that we are better. And then we transform from spiritual failures to spiritual giants to make the world a better place. So we think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul wrote that we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to you and to not us. So yes, we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we don't despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed, because we have your power in our weakness. Would you saturate our lives with your grace? And would you start to reveal what that looks like or can look like for each of us this week so that we can come next week and then learn what you have to say about stewarding your grace to everyone else in our lives. But Lord, we can't steward grace to others if we can't receive your grace for ourselves. We simply don't have the power to do that. So Father, we boast in our weaknesses so that your power can rest upon us because when we're weak, because of Jesus, we are strong. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.